Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open up our Bibles one more time to the book of Ephesians. In fact, Lord willing, this is the last message in our verse-by-verse series through this wonderful epistle. We come to verse 19 today and the closing salutations of the Apostle Paul. He leaves them with a prayer request and then some personal remarks. Ephesians 6, 19, Paul says, Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains and in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak but that you may also know about my circumstances how I am doing Tychicus the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will make everything known to you I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Do you find it interesting that Paul writing from a Roman prison is more concerned about the emotional well-being of the Christians in Ephesus who were likely worried about him than he was his own physical safety. In fact, when he leaves his prayer request, He doesn't pray that he'd be released from prison. He doesn't pray that the food would get better. He doesn't pray that that he would come before a judge who was reasonable. He prayed and asked them to pray that he would have boldness, bravery, valor to open his mouth and speak the gospel when the time came. This weekend, about uh, 200 men or so gathered here in our church for our eighth annual men's summit. Dr. Wright always does a wonderful job putting this program together. And I think surely this was the best one I have attended. The theme was men of valor. It was a call for Christian men to courageously stand for the gospel and for what is right in a culture that increasingly devalues truth and righteousness. The apostle Paul recognized the need for courage in his day. He constantly faced threats from his own countrymen, from the Roman government and from the world at large. So when he asked for prayer for the saints in Ephesus, he asked this, I pray and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. There have been times where I've asked the Lord to shut my mouth before I made a mistake, but Paul is asking that the Lord would open his mouth, that he would not be too afraid to speak the truth when the opportunity arose. Paul calls himself an ambassador in chains because he literally likely was chained hand and foot to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. But he understood that an ambassador was a representative of another. Paul was a representative and spokesman for the gospel. And he knew that it was his job to rightly represent Christ and the gospel wherever he went. There have been many Christians through the ages who have prayed similar prayers, knowing that to speak the truth would mean their freedom would be taken, their position would be removed, and in many cases, their very lives would be lost. Such was the case 499 years ago when 
on October the 31st, 1517, a German monk named Martin Luther made his way to the church in Wittenberg, Germany. Luther had observed for many years the financial corruption and the doctrinal impurity of the Catholic Church. And his disagreements with him came to a head when the Pope sent a man to Germany by the name of Tetzel to raise money for one of the Pope's building projects. And the way that he proposed to raise the money is to sell to the people what were known as writs of indulgences. Simply put, if a person had committed a sin, they could pay the Catholic Church a sum of money and they would receive in return a piece of paper signed by the Pope's commissary that said, you are forgiven. In fact, you could purchase these on behalf of other people, some of whom had already died. It was the original pay for play scheme. In fact, Tetzel was quoted as saying, as soon as the gold in the casket rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. Well, Luther wrote a refutation of the sale of indulgences because he knew that it gave lost people false security and ultimately made a mockery of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so here's an example of what Luther wrote. He says, it is vain to trust in salvation by indulgence letters, even though the indulgence commissary or even the Pope himself were to offer his soul as security. Luther had valor. It was one thing to attack Tetzel, it was quite another to name the Pope in his document. And that's exactly what Luther did in his 95 Theses, which he not only wrote, but he nailed to the door of that church there in Wittenberg. Now most of us who would read the 95 Theses, and I did that again this week, could say amen to almost everything on there. In fact, uh, we have been taught those truths all of our lives, but it was earth shattering in Luther's day because the authority of the Catholic Church and the Pope was to be unquestioned. Luther's valor unleashed, in my opinion, the greatest Christian revival since the day of Pentecost. We know it today as the Protestant Reformation. And I say all of that because tomorrow, October 31st, is Reformation Day. It's a time when Christians, evangelicals all over the world remember Luther's valor and remember a time when God sent a revival, a revival of truth and a revival of the land. Out of the Reformation came five core doctrines, which have become really the rallying cry of the Reformation. Five quotations, five truths. You know them as the solas. Sola in Latin means alone. And the five cardinal truths of the Reformation are sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. That is the Bible alone is our highest authority. Sola fide, faith alone. We are saved through faith alone in Christ alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola Christus, only Christ can save. And sola, soli Deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. That is, once we are saved, everything we do is to be done for the glory of God. Luther and the other reformers began to teach and to distill these core doctrines. And it really hinged upon the fact of authority. Where does authority come from? Well, the Pope said that he was infallible. 
And the council said that everyone must follow what we say. But here's what Luther found as he studied the history of the popes and the history of the councils. They contradicted themselves constantly. And so how could something be infallible that contradicted itself? And so he studied the scripture and he found that the scripture did not contradict itself. The scripture was true and trustworthy and he believed what we believe about the scripture that it's all true. In fact, he began to teach that the Bible alone is our authority, not any man. Because he found in the scriptures the way of salvation. And in the scriptures he found that the way of salvation was not following a group of rules. It was not checking off the sacraments. It was not certainly buying a certificate that said your sins are forgiven. The way of salvation is the way that Paul taught in the book of Romans. And that is everyone is a sinner, falls short of the glory of God. And the only way to be saved is through faith alone in Christ alone. We're going to concentrate today on sola fide, faith alone. Because here's what Paul understood and wrote. It's the hinge upon which all of Ephesians turns. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now that one verse has set off revolutions and revivals, and it has brought joy to the heart of all of us who have received it as truth. That verse is what separates biblical Christianity from every other religion and indeed every other ism in the world. Now you think about the Eastern religions of Hinduism and Buddhism. Though different in many ways, they are alike in that ultimate reality depends on man's achievement. Hinduism teaches that if you live a good and a moral life, you can expect to be reincarnated to a higher level. And if you repeat that process long enough, you become one with the universe. And Buddhism has a similar view. Islam, over one billion people in the world claim to practice Islam, but Islam is also a works-based religion. It's the reason that the radicals wrap explosives around them and drive planes and buses into buildings and destroy others and themselves in the process. It's because they believe that that work will get God's attention and win his favor and ultimately win them heaven. It even is what uh, those who claim there is no God practice, the atheist and the humanist, or the atheistic humanist, however you want to put it. Their idea is that we have no need of God. We can be moral in and of ourselves. We can remove God and any reference to God from every aspect of society and we'll be better off for it. And how has that worked? We find as we plant churches and as we talk with people who knock on our doors that the cults, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses also practice a works-based religion. In fact, not long ago when I was uh, in Utah visiting one of our church planters there, we were traveling down Interstate 15 through the city of St. George and my host pointed out a billboard. And on the billboard was an 800 number. And he said, that's the number the Mormons call when they do a good work to report it to the church. Because their understanding of heaven is that it's made up of levels and depending on how many good works you do, it depends on what level you ultimately end up in. Many of you came out of a Catholic background. 
And I'm not here to bash the Catholic Church today, only to say that the Catholic Church teaches that salvation is by grace plus the sacraments. The Bible teaches that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, plus nothing. And we need not the approval of men or popes to have assurance of our salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, here's our situation. It's not just Romans 3, 23 that all have sinned. It says, since by man came death, by man came the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ all made alive. It's not just that we're, we're sinners, we're sinners by nature. When Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out of the garden and sins cursed passed upon them, it also passed upon all of us. And we're born with a spiritual death sentence upon us. But thanks be to God in his benevolence and in his mercy, he made a way for us to be reconciled to him. But he did not make many ways, he made a way. John 14, Jesus said of himself that he is the way, the definite article, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. Now that to a lost and dying world seems very narrow-minded and even bigoted. Because most of your friends and neighbors, whether they could articulate it or not, kind of view religion as a great buffet line. The golden corral of theology. And so in that buffet line, we've got Buddhism and Hinduism and Mormonism and Catholicism and evangelical Christianity and Islam and secular humanism. And so most people feel free to take a theological plate and take a portion from each of those, mix and mingle it together and come up with a religion that they can sleep with at night. And yet the Bible being our sole authority says salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And as Luther and the other reformers study those truths, it distilled and jailed in their hearts and mind and they understood that they had been lied to all of their lives. And so in God's providence, just about that time, the printing press was invented. See, one of the ways that the church kept the common people under their authority, for one, they never gave them any assurance of salvation, right? Your salvation was always dependent on some other person to declare you saved. The other way is by throwing theological frisbees just out of the reach of the people. See, most of the people were, were not very educated and everything in the church was done in the Latin language. You had to have a very high education. They read the Bible in Latin and the mass was done in Latin. And so Luther began to, to read the Bible and he translated, he among others, into the lingua franca, the language of the people. And when the printing press came along, they could easily repeat it. They didn't have to hand write it. And so the, the copies of the Bible began to proliferate in the language that the people could understand. And then Luther's writings, his commentaries, and the 95 theses began to go out and common people began to read it. And their eyes were opened by the Holy Spirit and they said, you know what, he's right. The Bible doesn't teach that some human has to declare me saved. The Bible says I am saved if I put my faith and trust in Christ alone. And it calls an awakening. It, it calls a revival. And the earth has never been the same because of it. God has made a way. 
Acts 4.12 says this, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The only worthy one is Jesus. Hebrews says this, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is our message. This is the only hope for your lost children. This is the only hope for your community. This is the only hope for our nation is that we would bow in repentance and receive the free gift of salvation, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone. Well, believe it or not, when Luther began to publish his materials and preach his sermons, it was not universally embraced. (laughs) Just as when Jesus preached the message of the gospel of repentance and faith, it was not universally embraced. Just as when the apostle Paul preached this gospel, it was not universally embraced. We know that Paul spent most of his life either in jail or on the run. So it's not surprising that 500 years ago, Martin Luther was called before the authorities. A little over three years after Luther nailed those 95 theses on the church door, he was summoned to a council that was convened by the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Edward V, and that was called the Diet of Worms. I don't recommend a Diet of Worms, but a Diet is simply a council, and it was held in the city of Worms, Germany. And Luther was called in April before that council, and they began to ask him some questions. And the first question was this, are these your writings? They had placed before him on a table about 25 of his pamphlets and books. And they knew it was his and he knew it. And he said, yes, these are my writings, including the 95 Theses. And they said, will you at this time recant? That is, will you take it back? Will you deny what you say in here is true about the church and the Pope and the gospel? Now, I'd like to tell you that Luther immediately said no, but Luther is a man like all of us, and he knew the consequences of his answer. And it weighed upon him. He could barely talk above a whisper, we're told, and he asked for more time to think about it, pray about it. He was granted 24 hours, and he went back to his room, and all night he wrestled in prayer. Next morning... He came back before the council and immediately was asked the same question. Will you at this time recant? This time Luther spoke clearly and audibly. And his words are very famous. This is what he said. He said, I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Amen. May the Lord add to his tribe. Because none of us know what lies ahead before us as a church or as a nation, only God. Many of us are praying for revival. We're praying for renewal. We're praying for awakening. 
And we know the only way true awakening will come if we will commit like Luther to preaching the truth. But we need the same request for prayer that Paul had. That utterance may be given to us in the opening of our mouths to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. You see, the gospel is the only thing that brings about true change. And yet it's peddled, it's diminished, it's watered down, and we wonder why the Lord isn't sending revival. Revival is the Lord's business. If he sends it, it will be because of his sovereignty, not because of any man or any person. But as we look through history, God has been choose to use men like Luther, who were men of valor, men who stood firm against the odds and counted the costs and understood that this is the most important truth in all of history. May the Lord give us boldness as pastors and Sunday school teachers and evangelicals of all stripes. But the doctrine of sola fide is not just the purview of pastors. It's not just a slogan that obnoxious third year seminary students wear as a bumper sticker. The, the doctrine of sola fide is the key to salvation. And so I would ask you, dear one, what about you? What is it that you're depending on for your salvation? It's very easy to look across the ocean and see a nation like India that's overwhelmed by Hinduism and a nation um, like China who historically has been Buddhist and the Middle East where Islam is the order of the day and, and shake our head and say, how can those people believe it? But here's the truth. Most everyone you know most all of your neighbors, most all of your friends at work, most all of your friends at school have a similar theology. They really believe that if they're good enough or if their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds or if somehow they can be morally superior to the next guy, then somehow that will be enough and God will be pleased and they will spend eternity in heaven. Come real close because you need to hear this. Based on the authority of the word of God, that is a lie. There's only one way to heaven. The Bible says that all of us are sinners by nature and by choice. And God doesn't grade upon a curve. One sin is enough to separate us eternally from him. But the glorious good news that I want to open my mouth about this morning is this. God made a way for you to be saved. In the secret counsels of God, it was determined that the second person of the Trinity would intervene into history at the moment that he did. To be born of a virgin, to be tempted in every way all of us are, yet to remain sinless so that he could go to the cross and satisfy the just requirements of the Father. I had a conversation with a lady in my office this week and I asked her, what were you saved from? Think about that. When you were saved, what were you saved from? The answer is this, you were saved from God. You were saved from his righteous wrath. 
You were saved from his judgment. And so what Jesus is doing, the Bible says, he's ever interceding for you. He's standing between you and a righteous and a holy God. And this is the glorious good news, Paul says, of the mystery of the gospel. The question is, how do I get in on that? How do I have my sins forgiven? How does the cross of Christ become effectual for me? The answer is sola fide, by faith alone. It's not by good works. It's not by church attendance. It's not by becoming a deacon. It's not by becoming a faithful Sunday school attender. Those things are just outworkings of the truth of sola fide. Salvation is by a grace alone, which means it's a gift of God. The Bible says that God will not share his glory with another. That means you. He's not about to split the glory for your salvation 50-50 with you, or 70-30, or 99-1. He gets all the glory. And he gets the glory as you receive salvation as a gift from him by faith. You say, well, I had to have the faith. No, you don't. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8? That salvation is by grace through faith, comma, and that not of yourself. That means not even the faith comes from you. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now look, this church is full of believers, Christians, who are born again. How were we born again? We were born again when we received Christ through simple childlike faith. And we received everything the Lord had to give us. He gave us the Holy Spirit of promise to live within us, to guide us into all truth. And he gives us the glorious assurance of salvation. Not because I have a certificate signed by the Pope upon my wall that I know I'm going to heaven. I know I'm going to heaven because I have received the finished work of Jesus on the cross and through his glorious declaration that is declared in his holy word. What about you? Do you know the Lord today? You can. Scripture says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He means to come to an end to yourself. To despair of any righteousness that you perceive within yourself. Now that takes humility. Because all of us want to think we're a good person. Well, the Bible declares there's none righteous. Not even one. So I've often said the most level ground in the universe is at the foot of the cross. And we come to him not with our hands full and say, look what I can offer you. We come to him on his terms with empty hands and outturned empty pockets and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. Have you ever come to the Lord with that attitude? If you come to that attitude, I can tell you based on the promises of Scripture, he will hear your prayers, he will forgive your sins, He'll give you a home in heaven. We sang a hymn a moment ago. You might have noticed the mighty fortress is our God. It was written by this same Martin Luther. And the last line of that hymn goes like this. The body they might kill. God's word abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Heaven and earth will pass away. But for those who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Will live with him forever and ever. That was the hope of Martin Luther. It's the hope of your pastor, and I pray it's the hope of your heart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the word of God.
And Lord, it has been perverted, it has been diminished, it has been devalued for 2,000 years, and yet, here it is. Inerrant, infallible, perfect in every way. And in it, Lord, we find the way of salvation. Lord, we find that there's only one way, and that is through simple, childlike faith in Christ. So Father, I thank you that uh, I have great assurance of salvation, not because of anything good in me, there's nothing. Not because I've been in church most of my life. Not because my parents are good people. Lord, I have assurance of salvation because you forgave me. You gave me the gift of salvation. You've promised never to take it away. Lord, I pray for every person in this room that same assurance. Lord, I know some of them have been deceived and fooled and they've been taught that it's their own merit or their own goodness that will earn them salvation. Father, I pray by your spirit you'd open those eyes today and have the scales fall off and Lord, help them to see that nothing but the blood of Jesus is capable of forgiving sins. Father, I pray if there'd even be one in this room who's been depending on their own righteousness that you would just devastate that belief today. Wipe it away. Father, give them the faith to believe on Christ. Lord, I thank you for many of my brothers and sisters who are here, Lord, who are walking closely with you. Lord, I pray the same thing Paul prayed for for us. Lord, would you give us boldness as we go to school tomorrow, as we go to work, and as we're on the softball field, and as we're at the grocery store, to open our mouth and stand firm upon the Word of God, even as Luther. Father, help us to speak the truth wherever we go. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.